My name is Jen. I'm an interviewee on Bill Mitchell's When Dating Hurts podcast. I'm also a survivor. I'm an advocate. I'm a champion. And I'm so thankful for this incredibly helpful podcast full of experts, survivors, people sharing their stories with Bill. Bill and his family have been through so much with the effects of dating violence. Everyone should listen to this podcast and use it in their toolbox for help. The When Dating Hurts podcast is rated one of the most popular relationships podcasts in the world. Why is that? It's our guests. Whether you're listening to subject matter experts or domestic violence survivors, you know you're hearing what you need to know. And that is the truth about dating and domestic violence. Why it happens, how it happens, when it happens, where it happens, and how victims become survivors. This podcast is a powerful way for you, your friends, and your family to stay informed and stay safe. This is part three of Danielle's story. Her dream was to be raising her children in a traditional nuclear family environment, something she never had growing up but she finds herself giving and receiving protective orders and dealing with child protective services. Emotional abuse leads to physical violence when everything reaches a fever pitch. But finally, there is a resolution, and Danielle takes her experiences as her inspiration to write a book. We pick up where we left off in Part 2, with Danielle characterizing her dealings with child protective services. But a lot of them that I would, you know, they oh, I'm going to take your kids. If you keep going back to them, I'm going to take your children. And being threatened with that. You know, and there's no real regulation on how to talk to people. So a lot of cases, I would end up talking to the supervisor because it's like, no, you're not going to disrespect me. You're not going to talk to me in this way. I'm trying, literally fighting for my life, going back and forth, things being ripped, like the rug being ripped out from underneath me, but I'm trying to gain stability. And I'm trying to provide and and still wanting to maintain this traditional sense of having a nuclear family and paying a huge and hefty price for that because I want my family together I want my children to have their father in their life because I I grow I grew up with a single parent household I want this to work and or begging his family look y'all got to intervene y'all got to help because this is what's happening and them minimizing or saying I've talked to him. I don't think it's a big issue. I don't, you know, it's just really not being there to help. And I'm skipping around a lot because it's like, it's a lot of, I mean, just a a lot of of stories like this. So going towards 2018, that was actually the last bit. And that's the last hurrah of everything where he's planning to leave. And I found out later on, he would have my son around his mistresses. And my older one, because he loved it, he, he loved his father, wanted to, you know, I don't say idolize him, loved his father and wanted to be around him. And that particular night, he kept my son out till four o'clock in the morning. Mind you, that same person who was there during the 16, 2016 situation was there 
this 2018 situation. And I'm fuming angry because my son at the time, now my children are seven and four. My seven-year-old was out till four o'clock in the morning with his father. And I didn't know what was going on. Didn't call, didn't text. It's what child has to be out at four o'clock in the morning. So we got back. Definitely an argument happening. And I confronted myself, are you out with your mistress? Hell broke loose. And he just, again, the pinning down. He was pinning down. And my younger son, who was four at the time, he runs into the room. Because by this point, we were in the room. And I told my son, I said, stay back, stay back. Don't come, don't come any further. And it was just screaming and, you know, um, you know, claiming that I'm cheating on him and all of these things. He basically like kept pinning me against the wall. It just kept trying to like just you know, just being disrespectful, just complete, just being just I mean just nasty at this point, and just wanting to you know say all types of things. And this is how I feel. And he you know stole my phone, and that was one of his things was stealing my phone. He would always take my phone from me. He wouldn't this time. He never gave it back. I'll say the one thing that I walked away with this. I remember him, you know, the arguing, and my younger son at the time was four, and he's lifting his hands up trying to get between us. So. And so one of us would break, pick him up. And that time he said, you know, Dale, I could kill you. I can kill you with my bare hand. And he is leaning towards me with like his hands, like as if he's about to choke me. My son is sitting next to me and my youngest son is staring at him, staring. And he's saying, oh, I can't do it because he's watching me. And so that point clicked in and I said, after everybody I've asked for help, all these adults and trying to get out, my youngest son came to my rescue and I felt like he saved my life. And I hated, I hate that he was in this situation. And so to me, it clicked. I said, I don't care. I don't care if I have to crawl out of this marriage. I'm done. So that point, next day, I filed my seventh restraining order. Yeah, this was my seventh. I ended up a month later filing for divorce because I did not have the money. And meanwhile, he took the money, all the monies that I had and he had, and that's when he decided to leave and leave us destitute. Bills weren't paid, car needed to be fixed, everything under the sun. So even though I filed for a divorce in June, by August, we were homeless and living in the bottom of a, a barbershop basement. So I'm fighting, trying to get us out of there and get us into like this transitional housing, trying to get all the and maintaining, filing a divorce, navigating these waters as well. And so in the midst of that and then staying into hotels until I did find a place to secure, to get some stability, my oldest son was asleep at the time. And I said, I was so glad that he, he didn't oh hear God. this. I thought he was you know, asleep. And then because um, DCPMP came involved again and they said he wasn't asleep. He forced himself to sleep because he was so scared. So, so you know, so just a little things about with children. But anyway, so... Throughout the time, I started, you know, doing a lot of motivational speaking and talking about my experience and talking about what happened. And I filed for the divorce. In the midst of that, he reappeared. I, I will say I ended up seeing him again the next year. It was May 2018. I see him uh, again in 2019. Uh, and him trying to come back and filing a violation of restraining order because come to find out that he's basically trying to come back into my home and that he's at the same time promoting that he's homeless with his mistress on the front cover of a newspaper and and exactly. And so he ended up going to jail for that, for the violation of the restraining order and still going in the midst of divorce. Meanwhile, his parents are also trying to file a grandparents' rights. But during that time while he was gone, they knew he was leaving. 
they didn't try to look for me or try to make sure, you know, hey, how's the kids doing? Nothing. So it was dead silence at that point. You know, I won my divorce. Everything that I asked for, I, I pretty much got. And, and, you know, with all the evidence, I would, I would, you know, I'm not an attorney, but at that point you couldn't tell, you couldn't tell me I wasn't because I was handling my own documents, handling my own files and, and showing and handing in hundred pages of worth of evidence and motions and having to increase that, giving it to him and, and other people, you know, so having to learn lawyer terminology, law terminology, looking up laws, doing all of these things, I had to be my own attorney because I could not afford one. And so I was, the divorce was finalized in 2019. And then the next day I ended up winning the case against his mother having the grandparents' rights. And because I said that if, you know, I I pretty much, if you really cared, you wouldn't have enabled the situation. And, And one of the things I said is I did not want any of his family around my children. And the reason why is because you knew about the abuse. You didn't stop it. You didn't help. You didn't do anything except, you know, maintain his side and there's children involved. And they didn't like that. And at that point, I didn't care. And so that's where this fierceness starts coming. And it's like, you know what? I, what my mother taught me, the, this, this, uh, the strength. Okay, I can handle this now. And the judge ended up ruling in my favor. And he said, well, ma'am, you know, if you want to talk to your grandchildren, contact her. That never happened. That was five years ago. They never did? No, no, they, they didn't. It's another big show. Right. During the course of the years, between 19, uh, 2019 and 2020, I was doing um, motivational speaking. I would do like different uh, lives and, and, and talk about my experience, but also wanting to create awareness and really getting people to start understanding domestic violence. What happens, you know, not just the power control bill, but what really, what does it take to get out of these types of situations? And so there was a couple of organizations that I spoke with and I, I spoke at their events and then COVID hits. So as I was trying to take, you know, motivational speaking to the next level and become professional and really creating awareness, and not to mention at this point, I had I'd spoken with, uh, and my children as well, we spoke with the state of New Jersey, we spoke with different organizations out here, 2020, everything shuts down. And so during that time, even though I was still speaking a little bit or doing, you know, everybody was on social media, I really wanted to take it more than, I needed to understand what happened. What happened to me? What happened in this domestic violence situation? Because I was always trying to understand what is wrong with you? What is going on here? And I did not understand them. I ended up finding a, um, it was an online research academy called Polygens. But I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. I think it's a great opportunity. I was able to be enrolled. Anybody can join. I said, oh, okay. That was the first scholarship. I had my, my amazing mentor, Isabella, teach me how to properly research scientifically. So and I said, I wanted to create awareness. And the reason being is because even though I spoke at events, I spoke with different governmental officials and, and, and different politicians and whatnot, I still, I would, you know, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. It was met with sympathy. It was met with, you know, it, it wasn't met with, okay, we got to do something to change it. Yeah, it wasn't met with action. Right. And that's what I really wanted. Over a course of a year and a half, I worked on this. I, I studied uh, literature reviews. I researched because I'm not a neuroscientist. I literally am just a domestic violence survivor that has this intel from being in and having this experience. So I'm having to research this terminology again, this scientific terminology, and researching you know what happened. And I also um, conducted interviews with different people, 
and from all walks, like people that I knew, people that I didn't know uh, who were in different organizations. And it very much fascinated me and aligned with me what exactly I was going through. Some of the things, the scientific um, research, and it was talked about what you're experiencing in the brain, what you're experiencing when you're going through these uh, circumstances, what's happening with your brain chemicals and whatnot. And it was just like, oh my God, like, why hasn't this been talked about in the legal system? Why isn't this mentioned in the courtrooms? Why isn't this mentioned? So I formed this research and this is the interviews from, you know, like um, from a police officer and explained to me what's their situation. I had a warden, I had uh, a sociologist, all these different people come together and really shape their point of view of what domestic violence is and how it's impacted in their respective fields. And then to put in my own experience, the outcome is the book, Neuroscience, the Ecosystem of Domestic Violence. For me, it was one, understanding that the brain is the start of everything. The brain is the engine of a car. And it talks in real time. The neurons talk in, in real time to each other. If you're about to move your arm, that brain, your neurons are telling each other, hey, move the arm. And so then I, you know, digging deep into it also, I found fascinating was understanding the, the limbic system is part, regulates the emotions in your brain and the prefrontal cortex and just learning all of these terms. And one of the things I found was that in the, the prefrontal cortex, which is pretty much the forebrain and your own forehead, is that if there's any damage to that front lobe, it increases the person's chance of being more violent. If there's, you know, you see ridges on the brain, we, you know, you see what the brain looks like. There's a lot of ridges and it's called a gyrus. And if there, and there's also by, uh, there's white and gray matter. And if there's a, dec- a reduced amount of gyrus, it can mean that that person may have some mental health issues. It could lead to schizophrenia. Again, this is all scientific information and that anyone can look up. So I wanted to gather understanding the brain and understanding I'm still learning. I'm still learning because it's a very complex organ. But I, with the research, I also, you know, I wanted to compare it to the ecosystem because in the ecosystem, you know, as far as biological terms, it, everything is interconnected. You walk outside and you get the shade from the trees and the trees is growing because of the sun and, and you know, things like that. It's all interconnected. And so the same thing with domestic violence and domestic violence is interconnected because if something's going on with this person, sometimes therapy isn't enough. Domestic violence is simplified in the sense of it needs to be, you know, oh, or just a restraining order. But restraining order is not the smoking gun. Restraining order is not the end-all, be-all. There is something wrong with that person. That is going to require a lot of medical attention. And so we had to understand what's going on with this person's brain. So we have a lot of people walking around here and you don't know if something's wrong with them and, and whether it's chemically imbalanced. We do have medication but we don't know what is going on with that. Is that brain damaged itself? I started off talking about the anatomy of the brain and just to get people to understand it. And then I elevated from and compare, like I said, the ecosystem, like the atoms, the macromolecules, the molecules in cells, tissues and whatnot. And that's how I aligned the book as different levels of neuroscience, where it goes from, you know, the, the brain to the emotions and actions to the cells, but to people. And that includes the victims and abusers, but also introducing new characters as, um, you know, or different roles that are played victim defendants and victim defendants are not talked about. And I myself am a victim defendant where, you know, luckily my charges were dropped or dismissed and, and things of that, but there are plenty of victim defendants who are incarcerated 
because the system does not look at the situation in the in the same manner. It is incident based, but it's not you know looked upon as this person is is fighting for their lives. As a result of that, it, the revictimization continues. So I introduced that. I, I've also introduced talking about the schools. You know how the have a guidance counselor and even in colleges. And, so, and when one of the things that was discussed with um, a social worker who actually works at the college was that, you know, like Title IX and how, you know, it's supposed to reveal incidents on campuses. There are college campuses that don't reveal incidents on campuses. And that's to hide, you know, a reputation, you know, or right. so you don't know that these incidents are happening on campus. Domestic violence is not is not an actual charge. So in, in, and in a lot of this, you know, I had to people from different states, but mainly a lot of it in New Jersey, there's not a, a felony domestic violence charge. There's like, I would say it would be domestic violence would be considered under uh, stalking or under assault. And so this is why there is like a revolving door. They're in there for like three, four days and they come right back out. So there is nothing in there holding them in there. No offender type of uh, list or abuser type of list. There's been pushback about that because you would have to differentiate the victim defendants from the actual abusers. And that's the thing that, you know, it's, you know, who's the abuser in the situation and people don't know. People assume that, you know, victims are meek and mild. And then if you're fighting, well, you don't look like a victim. You don't act like a victim. And, and it's like, well, how are you going to act if someone's literally coming at you with a knife? How are you going to act if someone's literally trying to kill you or is basically trying to take your life away or, or whatever. It's, so it's basically for me, it's going down the, the, the rabbit hole and, and, and seeing like there's, it's, it's, the, the, it's not just the dynamic between two people. It's the experience of what's happening, not just during, not just with those two people in those incidents, but it's also with the courts. It's also with the police because you're also dealing with people who have these titles and we're indoctrinated where we're supposed to know, okay, when you ask for help, you call the police. You, you're sick, you go to the doctors. However, what type of police officer are you dealing with? Are you dealing with someone that's, that's really nice, that really wants to help, that's understanding? Or are you dealing with someone who does not care and is and desensitized and is going to treat you nasty? It's going to be and, and, and treat you horribly. Or what are you dealing with? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and or may not understand the, the, the dynamic of domestic violence because sometimes some of these new, I would say rookies, are on, you know, are handling domestic violence squabbles. And so they're going by their book and then you're dealing with a whole nother can of worms further extending into, you know, the Congress. And, and, and cause I, I was able to get a uh, Congressman Andy Kim involved in this. And, and the thing is, is that there's laws being passed, but it's, it's, it's not enough. There's monies that, you know, that was, in, that was increased during COVID because of the rise of domestic violence. That same money was decreased after, you know, COVID everything was lifted. And then we have, you know, entertainment, the way entertainment, you know, looks at domestic violence. We also talk about the kids and how children feel about domestic violence and how it impacts them all the way to society and looking at societal levels and not realizing that, you know, even, you know, we talk about science, but we're not connecting the dots to even with domestic violence, Pavlov's dog, the conditioning. And that is exactly some of the tactics even though it was a dog in the bell, so like, you know, salivating over food, it's the same kind of tactics that abusers use. It's the same, t- you know, fear conditioning. It's, it's rewards and punishments, all that stuff. Exactly. This book 
is one to help survivors like myself. Victor, I wish I had, there was a book like this when I was, when I was in it, but to really help them understand and when they validate the struggle of being in that situation and understanding that it is not an easy situation by far. And there's going to be choices and, and decisions you're going to have to make that may not be pleasant, but what are you willing to do to survive? Of course, you make a hundred good points here. One of the questions that, that I had years ago for people who were looking at all of this and working in the legal system and all that was, do you think that people who are abusers, do you think that this is intentional or not? And the, the answer that came back most often was it is purely intentional. What these people are doing, they fully get what they're doing. It's interesting, your book, without having read it, would lead me to think that maybe it's not intentional. Maybe people are just kind of made or become a certain way and they can't help themselves. That there is something that is missing or something that doesn't interpret reality correctly, meaning on the abuser's side. And therefore, what they are doing is what they feel they need to do. You know, it makes sense to them, is what I'm saying. What they're doing, pinning you down and threatening you or holding a weapon up in front of you, somehow in their minds and their reality, makes sense. Of course, you and I would look at it from the other side, saying this is completely wrong, this is intolerable, and that if you go back to that it is intentional, then you would think, well, that person knows exactly what he or she is doing, and they're doing it anyway, and they're just trying to make a point, going back to rewards and punishments and things. And if you come along, if you take the abuse, put a smile on it, maybe you'll have less of the punishments. Maybe you'll get more of the nice days, the calm days, the peaceful days. Super complicated, and it seems like there are a number of things that come to my mind, but one of them is that I'm out preaching about warning signs and so many of the things that came along early on in your relationship with this guy that had you known all the warning signs and if you had known them and taken them very seriously and would have acted upon them, you would have missed out on a hell of a lot of bad times with him. And it was a whole list of things that that you wouldn't have experienced. You say mistresses and people like that. I guarantee you he was treating you horribly and he wasn't treating them much better over the course of time. Maybe in the beginning, sure. Mr. Prince Charming. So it's tough. What happens at the end of these conversations is that I usually wind up with my head spinning around and realize we can't save the whole world, but we can at least warn people, maybe put them in a position to save themselves. The other side of it is that the people who are people that have these problems, meaning the perpetrators or abusers, we can hope that the day comes when the sun comes up when they realize, you know, I really have a problem with this. Just like an alcoholic might say, I really have a problem with this and I don't want to be that person. I'm beginning to see what I'm doing and I see how it's causing such distress on all my family members from my wife or girlfriend to my kids and parents and everybody and that they seek help. And that doesn't happen very often. And a lot of people that seek help get help, and then they kind of drift back because, as your book would probably say, there's a problem inside there that keeps wanting to take them over, and therefore we all suffer because, as you know, a lot of people can suffer because one person has this. The only statistic I usually use 
whether it's in my book or this podcast, is that one in three women will suffer serious physical harm from an intimate partner during their lifetime, and it typically happens between the ages of 16 and 24. Some people will say one in four. Some people will say one in three. There's also a statistic of men who are on the receiving end of abuse. But that doesn't happen all that much, especially compared to men inflicting this on women. Okay, there's that statistic. On the other hand, the thing that doesn't get talked about is what percentage, let's just say, of men are actually the perpetrators. Well, it's very small. I've never heard a number that I felt was really backed up by enough research, but it might be 3%, 4%. Not that many men are doing this. Right. The problem is, is that, that when they're finished with you, Danielle, that they go on to someone else, or they might be they might have several people at the same time that they're in various stages of abuse. Right. So your book sounds like really a pretty amazing book. I mean, I definitely commend you for taking all your experiences and rather than get pushed around and beat down by them and just kind of be flattened and try to crawl through the rest of your life, you're not doing that at all. You're stepping up and you're trying to take your experience and then do all the hard research chasing information and people down to get these uh, and then sort of liking you know it to a complete ecosystem I thought was really a, a good way to do that so people have to understand there is an interconnectivity of all these things that are happening you know there are ripple effects going four-dimensionally let's say it's not simple and you know one bowling ball can wreck a lot of pins you know it only Absolutely. takes one one of them thank you yes and I completely, uh, you know, agree with you. And I, I think that that's why I wanted to write this because I did have people ask me, you know, because they know I experienced it and I, I'm willing to talk about it and be transparent about it. But the thing is, is that life in in society, in the society, you know, societal terms, it's everything is simplified. Everything is put on with a band aid. Everything is, you know, all you have to do is just get a restraining order. All you have to do is, and it's like, no. Domestic violence is as complicated as human beings are complicated. Yes. And the people that judge, well, why did you stay? And why did you, and it's, what exactly could you have done? Because the abusers are not, you know, it's, it's not a one size fit all. They're different. They come in different, you know, packs and flavors and, and sizes and shapes. The abuser that I experienced may not be the type of abuser someone else may have. And, and I was at, when I spoke to a, a woman, Leisha, who was a, a, a batter's intervention program uh, coordinator, and one thing she explained was that, you know, she thinks that it definitely is genetics and, and, and it's nurture, nature versus nurture, different, you know, aspects, you know, come into play, but also that, you know, abusers also start off as victims themselves. Now, I'm not defending abusers in any type of way, but I, I'm saying that there's a deeper situation that's being had for how they turned into it it's almost like when you talk about you know alcohol and there's a story where there's two brothers and one you know they see their father drinking alcohol and one says you know when they grow up no i'm not drinking alcohol because i saw what my father did and then the other one turns into an alcoholic because well that's what my father did it's almost that same type of situation it is yes but you're not you know but the thing is is that it's not a simple answer and then you have people in powerful positions who have the ability to change it and yet don't understand it. And you can't, you can't change what you don't understand. And a lot of money's being thrown at it needs a deeper result. You know, housing, there's politics in the housing. How are people able to, to move out of their housing when you have 
rent is, is high and, and it's expensive or just as something as simple trying to get to a shelter and they're full that night. And it's like, oh, well, you have to go to a different county. Well, can, is there a shelter? I mean, is there a shuttle for me to get? To, no, you have to find a way. So it's society is, a, is, is presumptuous in effect thinking that people have support. And, then, and and when you don't, and then there's a shock and surprise, like how come you don't have support? You have a mom and dad. It's like, you don't, you don't filter into what's really happening. And when you don't do that, you can't solve the root of the issue. You know, same thing with, you know, even with the batters programs, just talking, but you can't fix someone if, you know, through talking, if they are mentally imbalanced, there's deeper things in play here. It's like, I, like I said before, it takes a it not only takes a village to raise a child, but it takes a village to raise an abuser as well. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of people in positions to help this abuser abuse, and they're not being they're, they're not getting arrested. They're obstructing justice. You know, just the same. You know, I, I use the term that if there was a murder and they were a part of, they would be considered an accessory. You know, during the fact after the fact, mm-hmm. what is happening before? These people are playing into it. It's learned behavior, you know, and that was that that was a a moment for me when I heard that you may have somebody who's very young. Okay, they're born, they're very young and they have certain needs and some people handle things differently. You know, some people from the time they're small to the time they grow up, something comes along, a problem comes along and some people handle it positively. Some people don't handle it so well. Some people like, yeah, well, that's life and I'll figure out a way. And some people are like angry and someone's going to get hurt. Okay. But becoming an abuser is something that's learned behavior, meaning you saw it at home. You know, you, you maybe didn't like, let's just say the cliche anyway, the stereotype, you don't like what dad did to mom. You don't like what dad did to your brother and you, but you do see that it worked, whatever it was. I didn't like Mm -hmm. it. I didn't like him, but he sure got his way. So now as I'm growing up, well, everybody wants their way. And I know right. from watching that, that kind of worked. So maybe I'll do that. And maybe other kids, like you said, would never do that. But I'm looking at it like, okay, I'm not very good at it yet because I'm seven or eight years old. But over the course of time, I become a bully. I realize that punching somebody right in the nose, even if it's a bigger kid, makes them back off. Everybody's afraid of me. I'm good with that. You can see how that little seedling grows up to become this abusive tree and you get in the way. And, and again, those who come along, great. You know, you could be my gang, you could be my girlfriend, you could be whatever that is. And for those who don't, they either get hurt or I just move on to somebody else. And over the course of time with a lot of practice, by the time they're 15, 20, 25, they become quite polished at it. They know how to bring the rewards. Rewards get bigger over the course of time. Maybe they have money, maybe they stole money. Somehow they have money. One day they're smashing your cell phone. The next day they're buying you the Apple 15, right. depending on how you how you did. Like you say, you kept having your phone taken from you. Not the first time I've heard that. And some days it gets smashed. Some days it gets replaced. Some days the new one gets smashed. Danielle, thank you so much for stepping forward. And I'm glad to get you on here. And your book, Neuroscience, the Ecosystem of Domestic Violence, is on Amazon and it's on Barnes and Noble. But look, thank you so much for stepping forward. And you're obviously very passionate about what you talk about because I could sit here and listen to you and 
I appreciate your ability to package it all up and send it. And I, I do feel horrible about the way that life has smacked you around at different times with your mother's situation and father and your ex. All that was so regrettable, so horrible. And and I'm sure you're a very good and strong mom. So God bless you. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I, I, you know, some of the things I haven't talked about in years, but just thank you so much. And thank you for what you do because it really, it matters what you're doing. It, it really does. People need to hear it. This concludes part three with Danielle. Such a determined woman, a great mother, and now a published author of the book, Neuroscience, the Ecosystem of Domestic Violence, found on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Thank you for listening to the When Dating Hurts podcast. We have been steadily moving up in podcast review rankings based on downloads in the relationships category. That means more and more listeners are getting the kind of advice that can improve lives for victims, survivors, and their families. If you feel we need to hear your story, do not hesitate to email me at Bill Mitchell at WhenDatingHurts.com. That's Bill Mitchell at WhenDatingHurts.com.